Abba Father, we thank you so much for Gordy and just his heart to seek what's on your heart this morning. I ask that, uh, that you would fill him with your holy presence even more so to be able to really share just what you want to tell us today through your word. So bless Pastor Gordy now. Give him courage to trust in you and all the things that uh, you have put on his heart this morning. Pay all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friend. <laughs> I'll just put on the podium there. Thanks. Awesome. Well, I asked you to discuss that question because it very much has to do with the character of God and the heart of God. And today, uh, we're beginning uh, a new series, but resuming a book that we've been working through um, entitled um, Family Stories, Meeting God in Ordinary Time. And uh, Genesis is a book that means in the beginning. Uh, the, the first three uh, words in the book are in the beginning. And it's, 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 a, it's a, a book about the beginnings of an amazing story which happens to be our story, everybody's story. And getting the, the beginning of a story is so critical. It just is so frustrating when you miss the first part of a movie. And, you, and, you're, and then you're having to guess, fill in the parts. And, and so for that reason, Genesis is very important and foundational to our story. And we're calling this family stories, meeting God in ordinary time, because we're coming to that part of the family stories of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and then Joseph. And how many know those family stories weren't always so sweet and nice? Sometimes they're pretty nasty. And, uh, and we'll see that in, in all its glory. So just like a TV series, series previously in Genesis, uh, we started by... The story of God, the creator, creating humanity in the image of the triune God, the social trinity, we call it. That God has revealed himself as a triune being that is not alone and isolated, that there's a community and from all eternity. And as human beings, we were created male and female in the image of God, as a reflection of the image of God, and that all of creation was this incredible temple that God made for us to live in. And that our presence in the image of God in that creation was a testimony that the creator is always present in his creation. As the first nations so beautifully portray in so many of their customs and traditions. Secondly, we talked about how that we chose to not trust the creator. We believe the serpent's lie. And th that God isn't good. That the creator isn't good. And this resulted in broken community. Broken relationship with God. Broken community with one another. Broken community between men and women. Broken community between generations. Between races. Between classes. And even broken community with ourselves. We lost community with ourselves. We lost touch with ourselves. As St. Augustine so graphically describes in his confessions. And 
We lost community with creation. One of the most moving things for me of the Truth and Reconciliation Report that the Canadian uh, Commission has put out is the need for us to be reconciled with the land. The need for us, there will be no reconciliation in this land unless there's reconciliation with creation. Very powerful and very biblical. And the creator is on this relentless mission to restore creation in partnership with us. He has chosen not to do this himself. How many know he could have done done it a lot quicker if he'd have done it himself? How many know that it would have been a lot less frustrating if he'd have just done it himself? That's why I asked you that leading question. That's why I asked you. That's right. Because I'm a I'm a bit of a kind of do-it-myself person. I feel like I can get it done quicker and faster, but but God's been dealing with me. Let me just be honest about where I am right now. He's been dealing with me that in these last years of my life, which could be another hundred for all I know, I am to do it together. There's something about doing it together, right? So looking for chances and, you know, uh, visiting Big Dave in the hospital, decided to do it with my grandson. It was just an epic moment for me to, to go with my grandson and walk through this hospital ward where all these people are laying around. And as we laid hands on Grandpa, on, on uh, Dave, Samuel just stretched out his hand without me asking him to, just laid his hands. I just thought, yes, do it together. Let's do this together. That's the heart of God. So, you know, I mean, you've all had your kids help you do something where you, you say, you know what, you're getting in the way, right? But there's something about doing that God, and, and it meant endless detours, endless delays, costly mistakes, and it still does. We keep messing it up. It was an incredible risk, but God said, we're going to make it right. We're going to clean up the mess, and I'm going to use messed up people to do it. That's you and me. And finally, God, has co- God called out Abraham to form a new nation, a representative people to represent him. So that's where we, we come to in the story as we enter our text today. And it's this point in the story where Abraham has obeyed God to leave his homeland, which is in the area of southern modern-day Iraq. And he walked with his family and loved ones all the way to the area of modern-day Israel, where God gave him a promise that he would be the father of a new nation that would be a representative people to God on the earth. And he promised that he'd make him a, a great nation, but there was a big problem. Sarah and Abraham, Sarah his wife, and Abraham could not have children. But at the age of 75, God changed his name. Matt mentioned that earlier. God changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father. And at the age of 75, he said, Abraham is your name. You are now father of many nations. And they waited, and they waited. How many years? 10, 15, 20, 25 years later, no baby. And finally, miraculously, at the age of 100 for Abraham, 90 for Sarah, Isaac is born. Isaac means laughter. And Isaac was this only beloved son of a man and a woman who were old enough to be his great-grandparents. Great-grandparents make good parents, by the way. A little slow in soccer and things like that, but. And he represented a promise and a fulfillment of longings that had endured for so many years. 
And more than anything else in their life for Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, their baby, represented God's faithfulness to them. He, he wasn't only cute. He wasn't only adorable. And he wasn't only the greatest joy of their lives. But he was, he, he reminded them that Yahweh is faithful. So every day they wake up, they see him, and there, there is like a testimony. It's like me every morning when I get up and the sun is risen. I go, God, the sun is risen as a reminder that you are faithful. And that's what Isaac did for Abraham and Sarah. And so it was a real bummer for me. Welcome to East Van. When I found out my text was this today. I really was kind of angry and frustrated about it. I thought, that's not how you kick off the fall. This story where it, it just seems to go so against everything I know about God's character. It seems to go against everything I know about God and that I love about God. And it confirms my worst fears of what God might someday ask me to do. Maybe not this thing, but something equally horrible to prove my dedication. And so I, 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 I struggled with this. But the beautiful thing about when you come to these, and how many know the Bible can be a scary book? Sheesh. I, I remember John Wimber describing <laughs> his first time reading the Bible. And he opened up to the book of Ezekiel. And he goes, that's one weird dude, man. You know, <laughs> what's he been smoking, right? <laughs> and, and when that happens, can I tell you, can I just ask you rather and, and remind you to not, to, to avoid two extremes. One is where you just chuck it out and just say it's got nothing for me, even if it's the book of Leviticus. So avoid that, but also avoid getting too close to it where you just swallow it hook, line, and sinker and you don't keep what scholars would call hermeneutical distance from the text. So let's do that with this text. So I'm going to walk you through it, read it through, and I'll stop at different points to, to just uh, explain some wording. And, and other than that, we'll just walk through it. So Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. That Hebrew word for here I am appears quite a bit in this, in this text. So I want to point it out. It's hina, sorry, hine, hine, here I am. Abraham's response is, here I am, hine. So note that. Then God said, take your son, your only son. Whom you love. Laughter. Isaac. Yitzhak. And go to the region of Moriah. The word Moriah. Go to the place of seeing. Seeing. Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, 
he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. You ever seen that before? Somewhere between the time that Abraham finally said, okay, I guess this is Yahweh, and the next morning when he got up, somewhere between that time, Abraham came, according to the writer of Hebrews, came to the conclusion that he was going to go through with the deed, but God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. That was the only thing he could figure out in his mind, the convoluted thought process that was going on. In his head. So he, he already had this faith that he would return with Isaac. Remarkable. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. I can hardly read this, I'm sorry. But as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. And the Hebrew is, Hine, here I am. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That word provide is the Hebrew word rawah, which is the same root for Moriah, and it means to see. And it's, it's like the Lord is, will see. The Lord will see to it. It's an act of seeing. It's not like a passive, well, the Lord's going to just watch. The Lord is engaged, and he's going to see to this, and he's going to make provision. The Lord will see to it, my son. And then the two of them went on together. That sentence. It must have been a rather quiet walk. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac on, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Nisei, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up 
And there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will see to it. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, he will see to it. That mountain, according to Chronicles, is the same mountain that David built the temple in Jerusalem. And it's the place of the Dome of the Rock today, a Muslim cathedral built in 600 AD. That very rock is still, in, by tradition, there. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself. And Hebrews talks about God swearing by himself, right? Because there's nobody greater that he could swear by. He had to swear by himself. I swear by me. Declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So, whew, thank God it ends well. But we're given this disclaimer at the beginning of the text where the author realizes that this is going to assault our sensibilities. So the author says, oh, the Lord tested Abraham. Which gives us a little bit of a clue that something's up. We get a little bit of inside information that it was all going to be okay. But it's like this divine disclaimer that comes right at the very beginning of the story. Which is nice for us as readers. I don't know if it was so nice for Abraham and Sarah. It seemed like some twisted cosmic practical joke that God was playing on them. After all, he knew and we knew, but they didn't. And it must have just struck like a dagger through their heart. So Jewish and Christian theologians through the ages, of course, have wrestled with this story. And there's a number of theological ang angles that people have taken on to try to reconcile this story and what God asks Abraham to do with God's character. And the first is the test angle. Nobody wants to fly in a jumbo airplane, tons of steel and metal going hundreds of miles an hour through the air, if the thing hasn't been tested. And nobody wants to fly in that same airplane if the pilot cheated on his tests or skipped them. So we know that testing is important. We know that tests are, you, you don't want to undergo brain surgery by a doctor who cheated on his medical exam. So we know that Abraham was entrusted with this incredible test, this sacred trust that God was giving to him and that God was testing him to prepare him to be able to handle 
that blessing. So the argument goes. And I think there is merit to the test angle. By the way, James says God does not tempt. So we're not talking about tempting here. There's a difference between tempting, which, which the devil does, evil does, which I think is to try to get you to do evil, whereas the tests of God is he sees the gold in you and he wants to bring it out. It's kind of future-oriented that way. So I think there's merit to that. And it seems to confirm at the end of the story when God says, it's interesting, God says, now I know that you fear God. And I'm going, wait a minute. Now I know? Who's, who's saying this? God? How many know that ties our theological knickers in a knot? That one. I thought God knew everything. I think he does. But perhaps God was saying it for Abraham. So I get the test analogy, but for me, it still leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Why would God cause Abraham to undergo this particularly horrid test? I can't imagine anything more horrid. Seriously. Seems unfair. So then there's the idol angle. The idol angle is the argument goes that Isaac represents for us the greatest temptations we all face. And it's not sin. It's not outright evil to gossip or steal or cheat or commit adultery as much as we always need to, of course, be aware and wary of those things. But the greatest enemy for those of us who love God and want to follow him are good things, beautiful things that God has given us. Not only are they good, they're God-like. They remind us of God. As surely as Isaac reminded Sarah and Abraham of God. And they so remind us of God that we can confuse them for God himself. Maybe not overtly, but in our hearts. They find the place at the core of our being where only God belongs. And there's this unhealthy attachment that forms in the, in the, it comes in the form of an addiction, a compulsion, an obsession, or possessiveness. The love becomes with strings attached. Gerald May writes in his book, Addiction and Grace, that the word attachment comes from the French word attache, which means to be nailed to. And what happens is our attention is kidnapped. Our focus and our passions are kidnapped, profoundly hindering our capacity to love God and love one another. And it becomes love with strings, manipulative, controlling. And is it possible that Abraham was getting into this? Maybe his relationship with Isaac was becoming smothering and suffocating and they were starting to kill each other. The love they had was with strings. And Jesus talked about this. Here's the New Testament version of the Abraham-Isaac story. Are you ready for it? Large crowds were gathered traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is shocking. 
Because the last thing in Hebrew culture would be to hate your father and mother. You honored your father and mother. You loved your children. Why would Jesus do this? Well, he was using the commonly recognized Socratic practice of hyperbole to get the attention of his crowd as he often did. He didn't expect people to cut off their hands or poke out their eyes. But he still said it. He didn't expect people to hate their parents, their wives, and their kids. But he still said it. Why? Well, no pun intended, but that word hate is a relative word. It literally means more than. It's, it's relative to someone else. And in Matthew, it's actually translated perhaps more accurately. In Matthew, it's translated, anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But this still would not have reduced the shock in Jesus' hearers. No one asked for this kind of allegiance in, in that time. Maybe Yahweh did, the God of Israel. They put God first and loved him, but for a human being to stand before them and say, if you love your father and mother more than me, was shocking. No one did that. No rabbi did that in those times. No, Moses didn't do it. Elijah didn't do it. And neither did other religious leaders like Buddha and Muhammad. They didn't do it. Jesus was asking for a loyalty like no other religious leader had ever asked for. People's identity, primary value, and emotional and spiritual center of gravity often came from their own family line, who they were related to, whose son they were, whose daughter they were, whose father they were. And Abraham perhaps was being tempted to find his identity in Isaac. So God's action with Abraham was intervening to bring him back into a healthy detachment. There's attachments and then there's detachment. You can only love with detachment. No strings. That's how God loves you. That's grace. It's an open hand. Not, I love you. I love you. That's manipulative. That's grabbing. And it kills. And you know what? You end up hating your father and mother. You end up hating your son or daughter. You end up hating your brother or sister if you don't put Jesus first. That's what the message is here. And so the question remains, couldn't have God accomplished this some other way? Did God have to do that with Abraham? No. Why did he do it then? It seems inadequate to me. So the last explanation that uh, people give is the foreshadowing angle. And the traditional location where Abraham was offering Isaac was on the Temple Mount, as I said, in Jerusalem, where David built his temple. And the New Testament seems to refer to this sometimes in, in when Paul said, He who spared not his own son, but freely gave up him for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? There's that word freely giving again. The love of God is open-handed, freely giving, no strings, no attachments. It's a beautiful picture of how God was willing to give of himself in Christ to save us, rescue us, redeem us, and forgive us. So it's nice. It's a great picture what Abraham was willing to do. God did 
giving himself and giving his son, himself in his son. I don't think the father was up in heaven smacking Jesus because he didn't like us. That's not the picture. It's God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I think that's a beautiful picture. Abraham's depicting the heart of God. Yet the question remains, was this foreshadowing so necessary as to have to take Abraham through this hell? So again, I think these are all legitimate uh, points, but I think they're unsatisfactory for me. But there's one possibility I'm wrestling with that I think helps me personally, and I, I, I won't be... I won't uh, deceive you into thinking that I've completely resolved it. I think it's, a, it's an enigma, it's a mystery that we may just have to live with. But one other possibility is the background that Abraham was in, was, was the context that Abraham's story and journey was unique in all of time and all of history. Abraham lived in a time where God needed to provide him with a teaching moment once and for all about his character that would be forever etched in the mind and the consciousness of the people of God, that God is not a taker, but a giver. We have to be reminded that God has never asked for child sacrifice. He didn't there, and he never has in history. He condemned it. In fact, there was strong judgment for child sacrifice on Israel when they would delve in it. We have to be mindful that Abraham lived in a time where he'd been called from Ur of the Chaldees, a land of gods and goddesses, much like the Greeks and the Romans had. They were a culture that idolized winners, symbolized by Galgamesh, a mythical character in Ur of the Chaldees, who was this fighter and this mighty man, and the value of might is right, and being weak and broken was despised and looked down upon. It was a culture of winners. We will make Ur of the Chaldees great again. Might was right. Furthermore, their idea of God was more of a small G, a good luck charm. Gods and goddesses were tribal and territorial and petty, conflicting with one another. They represented forces of nature like rain and wind and storms and sun and the cosmos. And these gods and goddesses were temporarily appeased by just the right sacrifice, just the right ritual, the right rites and rigmarole. And child sacrifice was one of the common ways to keep this god or goddess that it, you'd found really likes you on your side, which is, explains why it happened so often. In fact, it was so common that it would have surprised very few of that time for Yahweh to require Abraham to offer a sacrifice. For Abraham, when he came out of Ur of the Chaldees, Yahweh was just one of many gods that seemed to really like him. He thought, well, this is good. We got a special relationship here. And so God was tutoring and mentoring Abram into this relationship, that understanding that he was the living one and true God. And he was different than all the others. Kind of reminds me of the story of Rajiv. Remember, he came out of Hinduism to Christ in our church. And, and, for many, and he, told, he told us how that many Hindus in their journey to Christ, they keep Jesus on the shelf with all these other gods. 
But then they find that this God is kind of more active. He actually answers prayer. He's involved. And so the other gods start to fade away as they see how, how true and alive he is. And this was happening with Abraham. So few would have been very surprised. What would have been surprising for that generation is for Yahweh to command that Abraham sacrifice his son and then intervene and say, don't do it. It would have been more impacting than if God had never asked Abraham to do it in the first place. It was more impacting on their psyche and on their culture for God to say, do it and then stop him. Many Jewish rabbis and scholars believe that God allowed this drama to forever be rid of child sacrifice in Israel's history. So it's a unique journey, but it's also perhaps an issue of control because even though people claim to worship gods and goddesses, those gods were their servants. They were still God. They were still the master. They would just manipulate gods to do what they want with strings and rites and rituals and rigmarole. And once and for all, God is, wants to show Abraham, you're not in control. I'm God. You're not. Let's keep that relationship. I, I love what Thomas Cahill writes. He says, God is a God and he is in control. Other, all other gods are figments, sorry projections of human devices in our attempts to control. But only this God is worthy of my whole life, devotion and allegiance. So can we, like Abraham, my friends, say, Nisei, here I am. You are God. I am not. Can we be as open to this God as Abraham was to his own child when he said to Isaac, Nisei, when my grandkids call, Grandpa, there's something in me that just opens my heart. And I go, I feel like that word describes my emotion. Nisei. And when I was younger as a parent, when the child would call, Daddy, there's something that opens our heart that I think is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said we need to enter the kingdom of God. That openness to God, to Yahweh. Can we open ourselves to this God who cannot be understood, predicted, manipulated, controlled, agendaed? He's beyond our amulets, scheming, hunger strikes, and faith formulas. A God who sometimes rains on our picnics and church camps? Who allows human beings to be human in all their glory and their ugliness? Who won't fit into our little theological categories of liberal or conservative or mainline or evangelical that will always insist on jumping out of our boxes? I control nothing. My task is to be open to this God. He is in control, not me. So Abraham says, here I am. And the scriptures say that he reached out his hand. Let's go back to the drama again. He reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. For the first time, he calls him twice. He wants to make sure he doesn't make a mistake. He wants to make sure he doesn't miss it. He calls him twice. Abraham. Abraham. When did he call him? That's the point. Well, this 
if you, this is a bit graphic, but I feel I should show you this because this is a traditional image of when I, up to, to be really honest with you, just shows, I've read the Bible so many times, I've lost track of how many times, and I'll read something and I'll find something I never saw before, and I'll go, God, when did you sneak that in there? Right? And I saw something this week I've never seen before because I've always believed that God intervened when Abraham was doing this. How many, have, how many have believed that? You've thought that it was like he was about to bring the knife down and God goes, stop! That's not what happens. You look at the text again. Abra Isaac, it seems like Isaac was probably already a teenager or a young adult, by the way, at this time. Isaac was totally complicit with this, which is amazing. A real type of Christ. And he goes on that altar. It allows Abraham to tie him up. And he says, and he says Isaac, the only thing I know is this is going to hurt, but the Lord's going to raise you from the dead. I, I don't know what they said, but... Knife is there. <clears throat> Abraham reaches for the knife. And either on his way to reach for that knife or when he touched it is when God said, that's it. I can't take you anymore. We're done here. We're done. And so all my life, it's like God, the lenses that I was looking at this was so often that God's a taker. But it says Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram, a male sheep, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Yahweh, Yoray, God will see to it. So Abraham called the place, God will see to it. And to this day it is on the mountain of the Lord that God will see to it. The Lord made provision. What's going on here? Maybe it was idols. Maybe Isaac got into Abraham's heart and somehow God had to do surgery to get him out. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe there was a test going on. Maybe that's true. Maybe it was a test. Maybe there were idols. Maybe there were addictions. All I know that this story tells me that God was not standing aloof putting Abraham on some kind of performance test. That God was engaged. That God was involved. And he provided so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. God provided. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has provided for you and I so that we don't need to go through all these rites and rituals and rigmarole to somehow make God happy. He has made provision. And if you're struggling with an addiction, he's made provision for that addiction. You don't have to go through all kinds of rigmarole. I'm, a, I'm not against discipline. I'm not against 12-step programs. All of those things are wonderful and good as long as the foundation of them is that God has seen to it. He's made provision for you. So if you're struggling with an addiction, he's not standing aloof from you saying, well, as soon as you're clean for 30 days, you can come back into my house. He says, I'll be with you in the detox. I'll be with you. 
And I've been through detox. Oh, it wasn't from drugs. It was from religion. It was from church work. From the idolatry of ministry. I've detoxed. And all of us have to detox in some way, shape, or form. But he'll be with you. He'll walk with you. He'll provide the ram, the blood, the sacrifice has been given. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him graciously, freely is the word. You know what that word means? No strings. No strings. He's given you his son. No strings. And he just says, freely you've received, keep your hand open to. Keep that same posture. If you're having to let go of something, someone, maybe your, your preschooler has just gone to school and you're grieving the loss of that little one. You know, this, there's a lot of grieving going on this time of year. I've talked to numbers of parents. It's, these changes and seasons are hard. When you have to let someone go, when a child grows up and they leave the nest, it's hard. He's provided. He's there with you. He's provided the ram. If you're struggling with an attraction in a relationship that's not... On one hand, you, you know that you, you can't renounce the relationship, but on the other hand, you can't go with that attraction. It would become an attachment. He's there with you. He's providing for you. He's your ally. He's for you. He's with you. His love is without strings. He's faithful. So through the good news God has provided, he will see to it that we have the grace to keep us in healthy detachment. Love is detached from all other created things with Jesus as our primary value, our anchoring point, and our center of gravity. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. We've already invited you. And we want to thank you for your provision. Father, that you provided a ram in the thicket. And that this, even our surrender, is not something we do on our own. That you've made provision, you've given grace, so that we can be free of these nails, of these strings. We declare that you are a giver and not a taker. This is love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us first and gave yourself for us. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's just wait for a moment. If there's anything that the Lord's given you in response, just be open to that. Just going to invite Karen to come and just share a word the Lord gave her before the service. And if anybody else has anything, just feel free to come up. Thanks, Gordy. Uh, yeah, it was just the first thought, my first thought when I woke up this morning. And it was just the prodigal son. It was um, the first time I'd heard it this way was at a camp when I was a teenager. 
and it's like, you know, God's here, and through behaviors or decisions or through feelings, we as people have kind of more walked away from God and are over here, and what the guy was telling us at that camp was, you know, no matter how far you've walked away or how distant you feel from God, no matter what kind of lies you're hearing in your brain about, you know, it's just too far to walk back or it's gonna, he requires too much of me or I just feel crap, I don't wanna go, he's not gonna like me, right? Like, all the things that are in your head. That just like the prodigal son when he thought, Maybe if I ask my father if I can just come be a servant. It was in that moment that he turned. And that there was no distance because the father ran. And it's just a sense of anyone here who feels like you're distant, that there's nothing you got to do but just turn. And then he does all the rest. So if that's you, then I'd love to pray with you about that. Beautiful. Thank you, Karen. Just so the heart of God. It reminds me of a desert father who once said, the only distance is thinking there's a distance. So if you need prayer into that, I just invite you to come up in a few moments to receive prayer from Karen or others that will be here at the front. I'm going to, just in respect to Matt, uh, who's, who's just got a lot on his plate today, uh, bless you. So I'd like you to stand. And um, we kind of have a, what we call a vineyard messy uh, benediction. What that means is we kind of evolve into the coffee break, but we also want to make sure that uh, there's ministry time, that there's time for prayer. There's time for just uh, if the word has touched you or worship has touched you or something in this morning's readings has touched you, that you let the body of Christ uh, pray for you. So if there's somebody that you're with, that you trust, that you can turn to and have them pray for you, then please do so. Or if you're not sure who to ask, just come forward and sit here at the front and someone will come and, and pray with you um, but I want to uh, pray with a benediction for, over you and uh, just bless you to, to continue in prayer or if you want to just have fellowship, there's coffee and snacks at the back. And uh, I'm mindful of, of Paul's words that he said, Therefore I bow my knees before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you out of the riches of his storehouse that you be strengthened with all might by his spirit in the inner person. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all God's people the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length and to know the love of God that passes knowledge. that you may be filled with the fullness of God.
now unto him who is able to do exceedingly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that is within us. To him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you.